I'd invite all of us now to open our Bibles to Matthew in chapter 15, where we're continuing our study here and feasting on the Word of God. My heart is to feast with you um, in a story that is familiar, but perhaps uh, of interest uh, in terms of the boldness of a woman who, in desperate need, um, comes low to receive grace and mercy from Christ, the mercy that we all are looking for. We're going into Thanksgiving holiday and uh, looking forward to hopefully being around family and friends and good food. This is, uh, this is sort of a, a prelude to that because we're so thankful when we recognize that the greatest thing that we're thankful for is Christ and the fact that he's given us the gift of life. He's given us the entree with him to know him and to love him. And the testimony of this woman um, getting to know Christ should be an encouragement to all of us. Let me read our text this morning. Verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Um, I kind of want to tie together this morning the preceding context with this story. Uh, I think it would be very easy to just think, Matthew, he's been talking about Legalism, we've been talking about legalism from the pulpit. We've been talking about religion versus recognition of your heart. Trying to do things from the outward to the inside rather than saying, you know what? I've got a bad heart problem. <laughs> I've got something that needs to be dealt with on the inside that flows from the inside out in terms of a changed life and a changed heart. That's what we've been talking about. So what does this have to do with this? Syrophoenician woman, this Canaanite, a woman from Tyre and Sidon, which is a pagan region. And she comes begging for Christ's help. How is that connected to what Matthew's been talking about? Well, I want to connect this through an application and an idea that I think we all have. And I think we all struggle with the idea that we think we're the only one that sins in the way that we do. We're the only one that struggles in the way that we do with our own hearts. We're the only ones that go through the trying circumstance or circumstances that we're going through and nobody else is dealing with those things, right? We think we're an island unto ourselves, separated in that way, yet we're really not. Verse 19 of the preceding context says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. What Matthew is talking about 
by connecting this description of how bad we are with how the Syrophoenician woman is helped is just a key for all of us. You got to set the stage for this story with how sinfully sinful we really are. And guess what? We all have the same heart. We all have within us these categories that are firing at various levels, either spiritually, mentally, or actually, or outwardly. We're all on, we're somewhere on the spectrum of what this heart description is, is describing here. These are sins to kill that are in the lives of all of us. These are sins in our hearts that if left undealt with will send us to hell, will suck us right down like quicksand into eternal flames. But by the grace of the gospel, we've been delivered from them. And then we are now empowered to fight them. This is the ultimate seven deadly sin sins itemization list that we dare not ignore. But we also need to, to understand that we all are dealing with. We're all dealing with it. They're indicting, they're deep indictments, but they're common to everyone. There was a gentleman that uh, I was associated with down in Little Rock, Arkansas. I was there as, as an associate pastor and served on the elder board down there for 11 years. And there was a stately gentleman who was there in his 80s, well into his 80s when I was in my 20s. He used to tell me stories about his grandfather who saw General Lee Literally, General Lee, like, trot by on his horse to Appomattox to surrender. I mean, his, this was an older gentleman, white-haired and uh, godly man, loved the Lord. He would just talk about Christ openly and freely. It was great to be around and serve with and pray with. He uh, was a renowned doctor, medical doctor in Arkansas. He had brought Young Life there in the 50s. He had brought Bible Study Fellowship there. He and his wife did in the 50s and 60s. It was, he was kind of a, a story gentleman, was part of a, a conference center, Christian conference center. Also was a charter member, a founder of the church we were a part of that at that time was over 50 years old. Um, great family. Uh, but one of the things that I remember about this man is his immediate confession of sin. Just as, as, as quickly as he would go into prayer or, or a Bible verse, he would also wear on his sleeve, at least in private settings, his own struggle. And he would say, listen, I'm in my 80s and I still have my fight against my flesh and my lust and my sin. And he would go to tears. It's incredible. That is the common reality of verse 19 in all of our lives and experience. We rise and fall on what we feed and what we starve in terms of our hearts. And this is, where, this is where the battle is waged. So at first blush, it looks like this is a complete departure for Matthew to sow into this gospel narrative, this story. What does the Canaanite woman have to do with battling legalism and battling your own sin in your heart? Well, the Canaanite woman is an unlikely disciple. She's one of the most unlikely disciples that Matthew talks about. This is a Canaanite. Matthew is a gospel to the Jews. It's a gospel about the Messiah coming to save the Jews, God's people. And this Canaanite woman who's in pagan land, Tyre and Sidon, which is up due northeast on the coast, coastal towns of the Mediterranean Sea on your Bible map, would have been cooler temperature-wise than, than um, Capernaum. Jesus goes up there. This woman and Jesus connect there. And this woman would be non-religious, 
non-Jewish, could make, make no claim to any religious props whatsoever. She's an unlikely disciple of Christ. And what she is, is she's the contrast of coming to Christ by way of legalism. She is the opposite of legalism. She is the living illustration of someone that comes the only way that you can come to Christ, the only way anyone can come to Christ, which is by humble faith. Humble faith. Faith alone. Desperation. She's what's pictured here as, as the only answer to a heart that's this bad that verse 19 describes. The only answer is to come in desperation and faith. We don't know a lot about this woman, but we know enough about this woman to, uh, to relate to her and to be blessed by how Jesus gives rescue to her. She represents the solution to sin in our hearts. Which comes through faith. All right, so if you're taking outline, taking an outline, you can follow it this way. This is a conversion of an unlikely disciple. We don't know if she's converted like as described here in this text because her prayer request is for her daughter who is demonized, who is demon-possessed. And, um, but she, at the same time as a mother, is a picture of what saving faith really looks like. She has great faith. That's what the Lord says of her. She's an unlikely disciple, um, from two perspectives here. What makes her unlikely? Well, first of all, uh, she was, what made her salvation unlikely is point one. And this is looking at her conversion in two ways. So it's what made her salvation unlikely. What, why was she this unlikely candidate? I want to see her conversion from that perspective first. Why was she unlikely? Well, she had no inhibitions whatsoever. She was bold. She was bold coming to Christ. Look at verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. This woman is out of her head getting to Jesus. Now, how they came um, to connect, I have no idea. Uh, Mark's gospel says that Jesus was in a house here in Matthew. He's withdrawing from, from the crowds. He wants solace. He wants retreat. He wants to be away from the Transjordan area, which is basically between Capernaum, Sea of Galilee, and Jerusalem. He wants out of there. This is the first uh, reference in the gospel of Matthew. It's, I think, the only reference, the only reference to a time where he's outside of that Transjordan area. He's going on the edge of your Bible map. He's going up north um, there to a cooler environment, to a pagan environment, to get away from the religious oppressors. The Pharisees had found him there, and they're saying, why are you not operating according to Jewish protocol? Um, Alfred Edersheim, in the life and times of Jesus, he, he said that Jesus was doing and saying a lot of un-Jewish things. So he's upsetting people. And when you fight the good fight of faith and you feel spiritual pressure from people, it drains you. And that's what Jesus is undergoing and he's getting away. So as he gets away and we'll find out his disciples are there as well, uh, this woman shows up. So he's on retreat and he's still on at the same time. Like when he fed the 5,000, he was trying to get away and they followed him there. This woman finds him. And has a need. And she's a mama bear going, I need help for my daughter who's demonized. And I know that you can help her. This area was a non-gospeled area. 
The witness was light here. Remember the rebuke that was given by Jesus to Corazon and Bethsaida, towns that were around Jerusalem in Matthew eleven twenty one. 21. Woe to you, Corazon. Uh, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, these are those two areas, the Phoenician area, modern day Lebanon. If, if they had happened there, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So Jesus' footprint was not widely there on display, and yet by reputation, this woman knew who he was. And she, as a Gentile, is saying what the Jews should have been saying all along. You are Lord, you are son of David. You are master, you are God, very God, as Messiah in the flesh, fully human, and you are from the lineage of David. That's a Jewish statement from the Syrophoenician woman, or verse 22, it calls her the Canaanite, a Canaanite woman. Uh, You remember the land of Canaan, which was what Israel marched on to take over as the promised land, crossing the Jordan River. They went into that um, land, that promised property, overthrowing kings and and, um, the Canaanite people, the giants of the land. Um, She's associated with those people. You know, it's like, where Europeans would still have some kind of angst against the Germans. Um, she's, she's a Canaanite saying, uh, you know, it says she by history was an ancient enemy of Israel. And yet this woman is coming to Jesus and saying, you are the Lord. You are son of David. You are the one who can have mercy on me. You have all the credentials and I have none. That's where this woman is in her head and in her heart. She's not propping herself up. She's anti that. She's saying, I have no credentials. You have all the credentials. Please help my daughter. It's like being in the hospital. I've been in situations. uh, I remember one in particular where um, my firstborn was in the hospital, was a little bit sick. um, And, but I'd never had a child in the hospital before where there's problems and things going on. I had no inhibitions of going to the nurse's. I don't have inhibitions anyway, but I especially didn't have inhibitions with a firstborn daughter in the hospital where it's like, hey, I need help. I need help. Help me. And uh, anyway, that's what this woman is like. Have mercy on me, Lord. It's a cry of desperation. And she's an unlikely disciple. Remember the woman who was a Jew with the issue of blood for over a decade and She works her way through the the crowds and she would have been stigmatized with her issue of blood and was unwelcomed into temple fellowship, unwelcomed into the court of women, unwelcomed to touch people. And she just didn't care anymore. Her inhibitions were laid down. She's going to move through the crowd and she touches the hem of the garment and is immediately healed by going to who is holy as someone who was ceremonially unholy. She was made holy. And yet this woman would be more stigmatized and more outside of the circle of Jesus than that woman was. Remember 900 years earlier, Elijah, kind of a Christ figure as a prophet who had prayed. He was in synchronization with the Lord's will and he knew that God wanted to bring a drought. So the drought came with with Elijah's prayer, a man with a nature like ours, yet he's praying and the faucet is shut off. And so people are starving and dying and he goes where? He goes to Sidon, this area, Sidon, Elijah went and 
He found a widow who needed provision of bread and she was gathering sticks and just going to provide a little bit of of bread for herself and her son. And then they were going to die of this drought. And instead, Elijah, through miracle powers, brought more and more bread to both of them. But the widow's son died anyway. And then he um, healed, um, the Lord healed through Elijah, this son And so this is a similar story, but it's all to bring glory and validation to who Jesus is as Messiah. It's such an unlikely disciple. It's such an unlikely means for Christ to get glory. I think we describe the glory of God and the experience that we should have in these these incredible ways that we think it should play out in our lifetime and in our lives. And yet God puts himself on display in private settings, in a home, with this Syrophoenician woman, with this Canaanite woman in a private way, with a demonized daughter. And he's bringing rescue and glory in that way. First Kings 17, 24, which is the end of the story with, the, um, with Elijah, it says, the woman said to Elijah, listen to the end of this account where he had provided bread and he brought the son back to life. She says, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth and is truth and is truth. Elijah was validated. Christ is validated here through this woman's, through that woman's inhibitions and now this woman's inhibitions. She had no inhibitions. She was unlikely because she was so bold. And secondly, she, was, she had no status, no status. This is what makes her unlikely. She's a Canaanite, historic enemy of Israel. Um, Israel had the divine right to go in and take the land. And she was also a woman, which in our culture today, there's still sort of the fight for equality um, in terms of how women are dignified and understood, and that not even just being a liberal fight, but just a, a fight in general because the sinfulness of humanity looks down on people for all different kinds of reasons. But in the ancient times, there was a caste system that in this culture where women were just you know, put on the, the same plane as animals in, in many contexts, so there was cultural cruelty, and Jesus just cuts through all of that, cuts through all of that, and talks um, to her and engages her in a way that, um, that brings grace. We're going to see that. Um, you know, in the New Testament church, women are called co-equal heirs of Christ. I think that's important for us to say. I think sometimes people think, oh, are you going liberal with that? No, no. Men and women are made in the image of God. Male and female, he made them in the image of God, in the image of himself. Um, manhood includes manhood and womanhood, and this is the pinnacle of creation by God's design as co-equal worshipers of Christ. That doesn't undo the roles within the family or the roles within um, the church even in positions. It doesn't, I mean, we all have structures and roles that we operate in in the workplace and things. That is by design and there's a uniqueness and a specialness to, the, to manhood and womanhood and the complementary roles that they play in each other's lives. But, but this is just a good engagement of Christ to this woman who is pagan, who would have been stigmatized because she had a daughter who was demonized. Think about that. Where did the demon come from? Why did a fallen angel enter into the life of this household? Was this through paganism? Was this through false worship? We don't know. 
but the possibility is there. Is this a curse that God has placed on this family? We don't know. But all of these questions would have been raised in this situation. This would have been a daughter who was out of her head, perhaps not even speaking with her own voice, who was filled with a demon. So stigma is there. She has no inhibitions and she has no status. She's a Canaanite. She's a woman in that cruel culture, and she also is terrorized by a demon in her own household. And in the mysterious providence of God, Christ is put in exact proximity of this woman, where this woman can reach him, can get to him. This is the divine sovereignty of God that is understood within the details of God's coordinating providence of grace. It's amazing. Don't doubt the details of God's work in your life. He's working in the details. And we see that here. Finally, not only does she have no inhibitions, no status, but um, the third um, reason that this woman is an unlikely candidate for salvation, for saving faith, is she was not a priority. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. She's saying, have mercy, O Lord, son of David. And he did not answer her a word. You could stop right there. There's no priority. Communication comes in two ways. One is verbal and the other is nonverbal and equally are powerful, especially in marriage context, right? Um, silence on either end can be deafening in the household or marriage. Well, in this case, it's no different. Jesus is not responding to her passionate plea. This is a massive contrast of energy where the woman's coming for help and Jesus is not saying anything. Before you think he's cruel, remember Christ is loving. He's sympathetic. He's gentle. He sees the bigger picture. He understands that God is at work. His father is at work in these details. Because John six forty four says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus certainly understood that this woman was being drawn to himself and it wasn't by mistake. And all who come to Christ, I will no, in no wise cast out. So he is up to something and he understands by de facto that, that God's providence is involved in the details of what's going on. But at the same time, Jesus' silence is met by the disciples' annoyance. The disciples become annoyed. They become annoyed. They fill the vacuum of Jesus' silence with being annoyed. They're saying, verse 23 says, and the disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. Send her away. Just like when parents will come later and say, you know, bless our children, bless our children. The disciples are trying to say, look, leave Jesus alone. Send, send yourselves away. Send these kids away. And Jesus, his agenda was to bless them. We'll read about that in Matthew 19 later. It's the same dynamic. But Jesus' silence here is provocative. He is trying to make a point. He is building a contrast between his mission priority being first to the Jews and secondly to the nations. He's making that distinction in his salvation program. Jesus originally commissioned the 12, we learn this in Matthew 10, to seek the Jews. When he was commissioning them originally, he selected the 12 and Matthew 10, 5 says, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructed them. He said, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Our priority, number one, our mission priority is I'm the Messiah and I'm coming with the message to the Jews. 
And that was very deliberate. And so he's making that message when she comes up. He's not using some kind of reverse psychology to draw her. She's already won to Jesus. She's already in the game. She knows he is Lord. She knows that he's from the line of David. In the providence of God, the stage is set. Jesus is making a point, though, to say, my priority, first and foremost, is be on mission for the Jews. But there is a second point to the message. What made her a unlikely candidate is flipped into her response, which made her a very likely salvation candidate. She was being drawn into the covenant community, and we know this by her response. She was un undeterrable. You could not stop this. You can't stop the work of saving grace in the heart of an individual. No matter how much we think we can, no matter how much good, how good the preaching is or how bad the preaching is, how you like the music or how you don't like the music, no matter how you like meeting a gym or not, nothing can stop the work of God in your life. God's grace is strong. It supersedes program. It supersedes everything else in our lives. It supersedes circumstances. God is saving those whom he is saving. He's drawing them. And Jesus knew this. But look at this woman's response. Verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Jesus had said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Probably as a test to provoke her to think. And she knelt before him. What a posture. The posture of full humility, full yielded submission. She's confessing Jesus' lordship. You are Lord. Help even me. No matter that Jesus needed rest. Jesus had given her the silent treatment. The disciples had dismissed her. Jesus had made clear that the priority mission was to the Jews. But this woman's desire, her holy boldness would not be thwarted. That's conversion. That's a person who is genuinely saved. Remember the parable story of asking and seeking and knocking that was manifest in a, a friend who came to a household. Luke eleven five says, which of you who has a friend... Um, will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. And a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. This is like what my teenagers say on, on a, like a Saturday morning. Do not bother me. The door is shut. It says, my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I mean, it's the family bed. If I move, everybody's going to wake up. Nobody move. I can't get up. Verse 8, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything unless uh, anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, meaning his tenacity, he just won't stop knocking. He will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. One who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. We're to be persistent in prayer because we know that God will meet our needs, but we're to be persistent and desperate like this Syrophoenician woman. We don't know exactly how he'll meet our needs. We don't know exactly how he'll answer our prayers, but he does call us to come this way. 
in a holy boldness, but in the lowered posture of kneeling humility. Remember Esther, how she approached King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. She called the, her people, the Jews, who she knew were under threat in that Persian environment. They were going to be wiped out by edict. And there was a prayer time. And, and let's pray for three days. And she's giving banquets to the king to set the stage to then come in in humility at threat of her own life, knowing that if the king doesn't lower the scepter, she'd be instantly killed. And yet, or the, the scepter was lowered so that she would not be killed. And, and the scepter was given and she came and was, Um, accepted and the Jews were saved and spared from being slaughtered by the king at that point. In the same way, the rich young ruler, when he approached Christ, he came rushing forward, but coming kneeling in a kneeled position, perhaps sliding on his knees. Mark 10, 17 says the man ran up and knelt. That's what this woman is doing. It's the right posture saying in verse 25, Lord, help me. What a prayer. Lord, help me. It's like Jesus, when Peter was walking on the water and Peter started to drown, Lord, save me. These are real prayers. Help me. Acknowledging lordship. This is the way, the only way that we're saved is to come to Jesus as Lord. Do you realize that? And there's a reason for that. If we take any credit for our salvation through our works or religious duties or our background or our Christian school degree or a book that we have read or a discipleship study group that we attended or some life partner, life coach that's helping, none of those things save. All those things are helpful, but none of those things save. If we're trying to take credit through something we do, we're actually disqualifying the grace of God in our lives. Romans 10, 9 says, because if you confess With your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. This confession of faith is not a work because you're confessing to Jesus that you can't save yourself. That's how it works. You want to be the Syrophoenician woman. You want to be the Canaanite saying, Lord, help me, help me. I can't help myself. This is non-legalism, anti-legalism. I can't save myself. I can't be my own savior. I can't prop anything else up and say that can help save my situation or save my own soul. I'm coming empty-handed saying, Lord, save me. For by grace we save through faith and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. Let's say man should boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This kind of confession not only strips us of trying to save ourselves and corrupt saving grace, but it also um, gives all the glory to God in the saving. Jesus wanted to make sure that she came the right way, and that's why he approached her the way that he did. He was ensuring that, that she was not coming in any mixed motive motivation. She's coming for complete and grace, complete and only grace to save. So she's yielded and coming, confessing Christ's lordship, this makes her a likely candidate. When you confess Jesus as Lord, that makes you a candidate for salvation. Secondly, she acknowledged her unworthiness. Look at verse 26. And he answered, it is not right to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Let's stop there. Again, she's acknowledging her own unworthiness here with what Jesus says 
because Jesus says something that, especially in a liberally charged culture, is just Ichabod. The liberals with that verse would just want to throw the Bible away and burn it to the ground because Jesus, he, does, he just kind of outright implies that she as a Syrophoenician woman, as a Canaanite, as someone from Tyre and Sidon in a pagan environment would be understood as a dog, understood as a dog in comparison to his children who are, who are the Jews. So what, how, how does this woman not run away from that? Well, let's just make a comparison with what verse 19 says about us. Verse 19 says, we are a defiled person because of what we think about, because of the hate in our heart, the murder, the adulterous stuff that's happening in our heart, sexual immorality, stealing, being fraudulent, being a liar, being someone who gossips and slanders. That's what Jesus says we all are. Being called a dog is kind of light compared to that. And this woman understood that actually it's of interest. Uh, in the original language, the word dog here is uh, kuna. Kunairaios, which means, uh, one theologian put it, means doggy, <laughs> means puppy. Now, dogs were scavengers by and large and were looked at as, you know, kind of the trash collectors in the community. And, but I, I think in some settings, you might have a puppy in the house. And uh, that's what he's saying here. He's saying it would be wrong to, to neglect the children at the table. Think Thanksgiving dinner, you got your kids, you got your young kids at the table and they're there and they're eating and you've got your bread and before you feed your children at the table, you go up you know, to the puppy, you just throw it on the ground. That's what he's saying in essence. That's, that's how harsh Jesus is being. He is being that strong, but that's how strong he's being. It wouldn't be right to neglect my children who I've come as, my, as, as their Messiah, all of the law, the prophets, the ceremony, all the symbolism, all the 400 years of silence, anticipating the Messiah. The Messiah has come. I'm coming to my children. I'm offering this gospel to them. And if I neglect them for you, that would just be wrong. That's what he's saying. But he is saying you're a doggy compared to this priority mission. He's saying that. And throwing something to the dog's to the neglect of my children would be wrong. But why would it be wrong? Uh, it's more of an issue, not that he used the word dog um, to talk about this woman, but, but to say, why would this be wrong? Why is it wrong to, to, to give the word of God to people um, ever? Well, the Bible says there is a time where it's wrong. It, it says we're to go out and make disciples or just give the Bible out. I'm giving the Bible out to you right now. I don't know where your individual hearts are sitting in the crowd or the earlier service. The word's being given out to children and children's ministries. It'll be broadcast later. Uh, you know, we give the word out, word out all the time because it's the seed of the word of God that brings life and, and changes people's lives. But there are contexts where it can be wrong to give the word of God out. And that's where someone is a willful rejecter or somebody's like, their dukes are up. They don't want it. And you know they don't want it. They're against you. To force feed the Bible to people who don't want it has some negative effects. It hardens people's hearts. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. It can have that effect where it actually hardens someone. It makes them not want Christ because you're forcing it down their throats. We'll be in a lot of family contexts and people will be over in situations and there's a time to open the word of God and the Bible and bring up a verse or talk about your Christian testimony. And there's a time just to talk about football because, because if you force feed truth into people's lives, it hurts people. 
It hurts people. And you don't want to stir that up. You want it to come naturally with the grace of God. And you say, well, where is that line? We'll talk about it privately, case by case. It's hard to know. It's very hard to know. Remember Matthew 7, 6. Do not give dogs what is holy. He uses that same verbiage here. And do not throw your pearls before pigs. You've heard that. Don't cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. You don't want to provoke people with the word of God. And that's what Jesus is clarifying here. He's clarifying this dynamic to the disciples. But I think he knows this woman's heart because she, in verse 27, says something more shocking than what Jesus just said. Jesus says, says it one way and is strong to say, there's a distinction between my priority mission to the Jews and this moment with you as a Gentile. And this woman, as Martin Luther puts it, um, uses his word, her word, his words um, to make the same point. It's incredible. She, she catches him with his own words in verse 27. She goes, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She goes, she comes strong. Luther says she catches Christ with his own words. James Edwards put it this way. He said, this is the first person to understand Jesus' parable. What parable? The parable, what we've been talking about. Verse 11, earlier in the context, it's not what's on the outside that goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles this person. And what's coming out of the mouth is from the heart, which is verse 19. This is the parable. This is the picture that our factory of idols, as John Calvin put it, or our sin factory that's in our heart is why things are bad in our lives or why things happen in the way that they do. And this woman, as Edwards puts it, sees herself inside of Jesus' parable. She gets it. I don't know if she had heard his teaching or not, but she gets it. The Lord had opened her eyes to see her sinfulness. So she doubles down and, and, and says stronger language back to Christ saying, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She sees herself as more wicked than um, we might see her. That's the grace of God in your life. When you see yourself as more wicked than people describe you to be, And it's even more grace when you see yourself as more accepted than you ever dared to think you could be. You're more wicked, and that's incredible. It's grace to see that and accept that. And then you're you're seeing that you're more accepted than you ever thought you could be. It's amazing grace. You see the grace of God in this woman's life. She knows her position. One person put it this way. There's two things that keep us from being saved. There's two things. One is a superiority complex. Okay, Jesus, I'm good to like kind of spar back and forth with you and tell you about my need, but I'm not going to go under the table. This woman had no problem with that. If you have a superiority complex, you believe you're better than being under the table to receive the crumbs. The other thing that keeps you from being saved is an inferiority complex where you believe that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. I'm too bad. I'm out. I can't even engage this dialogue. I'm beyond being helped. So you either have a superiority complex where you go, no, thank you. I'm not going to get that humble. Or you have an inferiority complex that says, I'm beyond saving. 
I'm too far out of the scope of God's grace and neither are true. This woman shows us that, that she can be submissive and see God's sovereign will in that. I think she had a bigger picture idea that God was saving people even outside of the covenant community. That's why she came in to Jesus saying, you're Lord, you're the son of David. I recognize your credentials. I'm stating by that de facto that I'm outside of that covenant community, but I want in and I want in by coming to beneath the table. I want the crumbs. That's, that's how, that's all of our testimony, right? That's how we're saved. We're just glad to be grafted into God's plan. Genesis 12, three, I'll bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all in you, this is to Abraham, in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The nation shall be saved. It's what we prayed over earlier in the reading of God's word. The remnant of Israel, the saved people of Israel, their faith is compelling to the Gentiles. They say, I want what they have. But when the Israelites also rejected Christ, This is also compelling to the Gentiles to say, I want what I do not deserve. I want to be grafted in. I want to be sewn into the fabric of God's overarching plan. This posture of a woman is shown to us. It's a posture of being saved. This is a woman who who confessed Jesus' lordship, who, who knelt under his lordship as well. And then finally, she exercised saving faith. She was acknowledging her unworthiness and she exercised saving faith. No matter how dramatic Jesus was, she is manifesting faith. Remember when Jesus said to the crowds, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood and then you have eternal life. And and the crowds are dispersed or grossed out by that. They don't understand that that means full commitment to Christ. And he looks at his disciples who are still standing there and he says, do you also want to scatter? Remember that in John 6. Verse 68, Peter says, where else have we to go when you alone have the words of eternal life? No matter how shocking the statements are, true faith is compelled to stay. And that's what this woman does. Verse 28 is where Jesus applauds it. Then Jesus answered her, oh woman, great is your faith. Mega, that's the word, is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Great is your faith. Like the centurion, remember the Gentile centurion in Mark's gospel account who was begging the Lord to rescue his sick and infirm servant. Jesus said he would go. The centurion said, you don't have to go. You can just speak a word and that servant will be rescued. And Jesus lauded that person's faith. He called, he said, I've not found faith like that in all of Israel. He marveled at it, Matthew 8, chapter 10. This woman passed the test. She had great faith. And guess what? Her daughter was healed. Her daughter, who had the demon, wasn't there, wasn't present. In Mark's account, we know this because in Mark's account, in in chapter 7, verse 30, it says, The woman, she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon was gone. This little girl was probably exhausted, but was delivered. Jesus didn't have to be there. He didn't have to be in close proximity. He just spoke a word. Why? Because he's Lord over all of creation. He's Lord over the physical and the spiritual realm. He's Lord over it all. And the point wasn't primarily just to heal the daughter, though that was the mercy of Christ. That was the deepest desire as we see it. 
of this woman. It said, be it done for you as you desire, as is your passion. But the point was that this woman's faith would be extolled, that a Gentile, the most unlikely person on the planet could be saved. If she could be saved, you could be saved. If she can be saved, anybody can be saved. People who are wrapped in paganism, people who are stigmatized by their history, their their ethnicity, being a Canaanite, people who are stigmatized by having a daughter who's demonized, they can be saved. Through legalism, no. Through heart change, grace that comes through faith, desperate faith, yes. This woman had a daughter who, who was demonized and was healed instantly. It just confirms that God is at work in this family's life And in this woman's life who had great, great faith. No religious help for her predicament. She had everything against her. And because she had nothing to prop her up, she got everything. She found herself within this parable. You know, John Newton was the author of Amazing Grace. We know that song. You might know his history as a slave trader and abuser and a wicked man, but then was saved by grace and then turned pastor and became an amazing pastor. And this is what he said regarding the heart of a man. He said, you say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Well, Indeed, you cannot be too aware of the evils inside yourself, but you may be. Indeed, you are improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it's hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. You complain about sin, but when you look at your complaints, they are so full of self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience that they are little better than the worst evils you complain of, right? Deliverers of pride, of being too proud to be saved, too proud to be rescued, too proud to be helped. Let's be humble. Let's be like the Syrophoenician woman, get under the table where we are not too proud to be helped, not too arrogant, not too impatient to be rescued. You know, this is a time of thanksgiving. Let's be thankful for the grace of God and let's share the love of Christ with people over this holiday season because these divine appointments will happen. You'll want rest. You'll want relaxation. You'll want to let down, and then suddenly God will inject an opportunity in your life. I mean, leave room for it, because I think this text sets the table for us to respond as Jesus did and offer truth to people who are ready to receive it.